Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Just a little housekeeping. <laughs> who's, who's been to Word in Your Ear before? Yeah. Oh, okay, reasonable number. Well, thank you very much for battling through storm... Was it Hurricane Dennis we've just had? Hurricane Dennis. It's not a very hurricane name, Hurricane Dennis, is it really? Well, you would never guess what the next hurricane name is going to be. Uh, Craig? Hurricane mm-hmm. Ellen. Oh, you're kidding. It's going to be Hurricane Ellen. So it's going to be your personal hurricane when it arrives. Anyway. I thought it was going to be Hurricane Elvis. But for the benefit of anybody who's not been before, although it says we start at 7.30, it's our proud boast that we start early and we finish early as well, which has proved very popular because everybody likes to be looking at the inside of their lids by about 9.30, no later. Okay. This is a bit of a word in your ear with a, with a difference, really, with a, with a literary flavour, uh, although very much concerned with music all the way through. And uh, our first guest this evening, would you please welcome Beth and Roberts. Please welcome. <laughs> and Beth and her has written a number of novels uh, that have uh, been very well received and very well reviewed and uh, even been you've been in the book at bedtime slot I think book is that bedtime, right bedtime yes I book have, at yeah. bedtime which, which book was book at bedtime uh, the good plain cook was book at bedtime okay, yeah right uh, but the book we're here to talk about mainly is your fantastic book Graceland mm-hmm. uh, which is about the early life I suppose of Elvis Presley uh, which both Mark and I read last year and have been immensely impressed with. It's fantastic. Uh, and Thank it's just you. come out in paperback. Um, but it's traditional that we start these Word in Your Ear chats by asking our guest to tell us or to describe to us the music-playing machinery that there was in your house when you were a small child and what you played on it. Yes. Can you remember? Yes, I can remember. Um, so the music playing machinery in my house when I was a small child. 
I was, I, we were talking a bit about this before, and I, I, because I'm, I'm a girl, I don't know what it's called, um, but it's, a, <laughs> it's like a wooden cabinet. With a, radiogram. A, with a radiogram. radiogram. With a record player There's in it. There's a blokey answer for you. <laughs> there you go. It was a radiogram. Um, and it looked a bit like a kind of spaceship in that it was sort of bulbous and it had these sliding doors. And it was quite beautiful, actually. It was a wooden thing. Very, very um, uh, well looked after, lovely object that we weren't supposed to play around with, me and my brother, but obviously we did. Um, and, yeah, so it had, it had the radio that kind of lit up underneath and then, the, then there was a record player... And, and all the records sort of slid into the side. And what kind of records? So, and the records were um, Elvis records, obviously, particularly uh, live at Madison Square Garden, which is the one with the incredibly exciting intro, you know, the, um, the Strauss piece. Oh, right, you know, yeah, yeah. That thing. And um, <laughs> so we played that a lot. Also, my mum had a load of um, 45s from when she was young, which included um, Shaking All Over, remember that one? which me and my brother played a lot. Um, but also, I'm sorry to say, quite a lot of David Essex. Right. Which did, which no did, shame there. Which did, which did make me cry when my mum put it on, because um, it was a bit... I found, I found David scary, I'm not sure why, but I did. Scared by David so, Essex. Yeah. So when <laughs> I know. When, that is odd. It's um, odd, isn't When it? did you first start to have your own musical taste? Um, so, well, I guess I always liked Elvis. And then I got into... I think my first single, I was probably about eight or nine. And I went down to the local Woolies and I bought Toto Coelho, I Eat Cannibal. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Cannibal. Toto Coelho, if I remember correctly, <laughs> used to wear, used to wear bin bags. They did. They, yeah, they were wearing bin bags. David and I both on, worked on the smash sleeve. hits at the time. Uh -huh. Toto Coelho. So well, we're very. We, we may well have interviewed them. Smash hits was my life for a long time. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, it really was. Um, so Toto Coelho, and then I think Shy Boy by Bananarama. Right. Yeah. And then wham! I mean, I could I could go on. It's it's a kind of yeah, right, but it's that it's, kind of thing. It's, it's well, an avenue it, of shame. You know, we, all, we always ask about you know music playing machinery because it's a way of finding out you know how posh people are and yeah. how old they are without yeah, directly yeah. asking. Yeah. Okay. So you can make so of that what you what how you will. How posh am I then? I'm, inter I'm interested. Well, you got a radiogram. Know. I would say you know it's posher than me if you really? got a radiogram. Yeah. Really. Mark still tells the story about you, your father had a radiogram, didn't he? He wouldn't allow you to play your dog. Yeah, he wouldn't let us play pop records. Me and my three sisters weren't allowed to play pop records. He said it damaged the stylus. Which is <laughs> brilliant. It's his way of just making sure he never heard Donovan. Exactly. <laughs> the Pink Floyd. So, but, but your mother was the, is the link with Elvis Presley, isn't she? Yeah, my mum's a huge, huge Elvis fan. Um, and, you know, has been for as long as she can remember, really. Um, I think she went to see Blue Hawaii first. That was when she first became aware of him. And she often tells me about when she was at school, you had a very, very important um, decision to make, which was whether you were a Cliff or whether you were Elvis. And she was definitely Elvis. Although, in her later years, she also went to see Cliff, which I find confusing. Yes, mm. just to confirm how terrible he was and how great Elvis was. Well, yeah, it, we'll say that, shall yeah. we? Yeah. But you, you, went to, you went to Graceland. I did. With your mother. Tell us about this. Um, so, yeah, so I first went probably about 15 years ago. My mum had always wanted to go to Graceland. It was kind of a lifelong dream, you know, to be where the king was, to be close to him in that way. 
Um, so we went together, and it was on one of those kind of um, organised coach tour jobs where you go and you see all the sites, you know. Oh, so you went so to Tupelo and everything? We went, we went, we did the whole thing. Right. Um, and we went to Nashville, went to RCA Studio B and so on. And um, I was, I, <laughs> I went really as a kind of favour to my mum. You know, I liked Elvis, but I didn't really want to go on that holiday, to be honest. Um, but then when I got to Graceland, um, I just found it so fascinating because it was... I mean, you can't really you can't really appreciate it there, but when you go, it, it is quite small for a celebrity it's mansion. It's very small, and it, it does feel like a real place, you know, where people actually lived. It doesn't feel like a kind of Hollywood movie, you know. And you know, they've got stuff there, like you know, Gladys's dresses in the in in the closet and so on. And I suppose that's when I started to think about, you know, who is this guy? You know, who is he really? And then I didn't, I didn't think about it that much until a few years ago when I, you know, needed something else to write about because that's how I work. I just kind of write something and then I think, ah, what else can I write about? And um, I was kind of casting around and somebody said to me, oh, you're always telling those stories about how you went to Graceland and how weird it was and how interesting it was, you know. Why don't you write about that? So I started writing about that, and I started writing about a woman going with her mum, surprise, surprise, to, to Graceland. But then I started reading about Elvis... And about his life, you know, and it was it was just so odd and so amazing that I I just started wanting to write about him really, and it took me a little while to work up the nerve, because obviously you know I'm 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 an English woman and I don't, <laughs> it's you know it's quite a big leap to to sort of imagine yourself in Elvis Presley's shoes. Um, but I don't know, I just I kind of couldn't resist it. So little by little, I'd, I'd, I kind of climbed into his shoes and walked around a bit. And you went back to Graceland, did you? I did, Again yeah. Again with your mother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I went back to do the research. So this is when I knew I was going to write a book about him. And, um, and this time I said to Mum, well, you've got to come with me rather than the other way around. Right. So she came again. And, um, and, and this time we didn't go on the, on, on the tour. But, you know, we, we did all the sites kind of on, off our own back, yeah. So th th this is a novel, but it's closely based on a lot of facts that we know about Elvis's early life. I mean, how much how much divergence have you allowed yourself from the facts? Well, I mean, it's a good question. In a way, in a way, I can't kind of remember now because it all feels like it actually happened to me, you know. <laughs> but what I tried to do was I tried to um, hang everything on the skeleton of the facts. So, you know, where there was um, something that was really interesting to me that had actually happened, I tried to include that, but I tried to imagine the bits that no one had written about. So, in other words, you know, how it felt to the people in, in the room, you know. And, um, you know, I tried to kind of walk around, you know, in, in their bodies and see through their eyes, because that's what you do as a fiction writer. Um, but, so I tried not to make... You know, I didn't. I didn't bend the facts. Do you know what I mean? I, I went. I went with them. But I did. I mean, Hilary Mantel, who wrote the um, the Wolf Hall novels um, about Thomas Cromwell, says it's all right to select, highlight, and omit. Just don't cheat. So that's what I tried to do. So right. I decided quite early on. You know, my Elvis story was a story about a boy and his mother. Um, and so you know, I I selected those stories that, that told the kind of overarching narrative of Elvis and Gladys, his mum. So you, you haven't introduced any characters who didn't exist 
Um, well, now I'm trying to think. Now I think there I might be there, there might be one. That there's one. I think there's a, a girl called Noreen Fishbourne who I made up. Right. Okay. But everybody yeah, but else. Everybody else existed. Existed. And you, yes. and you read all the you know Peter Grounick biographies and yeah. all the I, other. I, biographies. I read as many biographies as I could, and you know watched as many things as I could, and you know I, I mean I did a couple of years of, of research yeah. right so let's let's just start with the basic family group because it is pretty extraordinary yeah. and we're looking here at the, at the famous picture of elvis with his of young elvis who's probably about two and a bit or something like that um, yeah yeah uh, with with his parents yeah. uh which people may be familiar with it appeared on the cover of an album called I'm 10,000 years old, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 something like that. Elvis Country, yeah. Yeah, so uh, and tell us about what, what, what we know about the basic family unit at this time. So at this time, which would have been uh, late 30s, um, uh, Vernon has just been... Um, Vernon has just been uh, about to be put in jail. We think We think this picture was taken... Um, just before he went to jail, actually, um, because and he went to have a changing a check. He forged for, for a check. Forging a check. That's he forged right. Forged a check, and he changed it to thirty dollars from from whatever it was, three, I suppose. Um, and it was for, for a that, hog. For eight months. It in was a for a hog. Well, he actually was sentenced to three years, but he only did about eight or, eight or nine months, yeah. I think, because he got off on good behaviour. Gladys actually went round all of Tupelo, knocking on doors, getting up a petition for his release. Um, and um, so Elvis was left alone with with Gladys, although you know obviously they were living with other other family members a lot. Um, but he sort of became the man of the house, and you know the story goes that from that moment on it was kind of Elvis and Gladys, and Vernon was always on the outside. And and the shame of this of um, you know of the fact that. Vernon went to the pen, so he went to Parchman Penitentiary, which is, you know, particularly gruesome. Parchman yeah, yeah, Farm. Yeah. Um, Parchman Farm, yeah, which is, you know, basically like a slave plantation. Um, the, the, the shame of that was so great that Elvis never spoke about it to anyone, and I don't think even Priscilla knew about it um, until long, you know, until many years into their relationship. So uh, that obviously marked Elvis for life. And Mark Gladys. And she was a very controlling person in some ways, wasn't she? I mean, she's four years older than Vernon, is that right? So she, she, she certainly controlled Elvis, and we'll get to that in a moment. Was she controlling of, of her husband too? Was she the one in charge? Um, I think she was the responsible one in the relationship, you know, in that Vernon was known around Tupelo for being what they called a no-good jelly bean, um, which, you know, kind of means he never could keep a job. Um, you know, he wasn't very reliable, he wasn't very responsible. His daddy was kind of known as being this kind of playboy figure, a bit of a drunkard, very like Elvis in that he loved um, buying new clothes and swanning around town and going off with women. Um, and, you know, Vernon was kind of known to be cut of the same cloth. Um, but so Gladys, I suppose, kind of took the reins because she kind of had to. And... Um, uh, Elvis kind of stepped into his father's shoes, I think, quite quite early on, really. In that, in that, you know, from from when he was a teenager, he was the one bringing home most of the money in in the house. And what kind of a boy was he? Because you talk about all these things about him sleepwalking. I mean, that was that's something mm. you discovered, right? Mm -hmm. and talking to his twin brother who died, in fact, when they were born, and so yeah, yeah. So, so his 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 twin brother Jesse he died. He definitely did that. Or 
Well, I mean, um, how do we know that he did that? I mean, we don't we don't really know, but we know that he um, he talked a lot to other people about Jesse and wondered a lot about what it meant that he had a dead twin, you know, that he was the one yeah. who was saved. And we know that Gladys often said to him, well, you know, when one twin dies, the other one gets the strength of two. So, you know, Elvis has got that kind of double whammy of feeling, you know, a huge amount of guilt because <laughs> he's the one that survived, but also a huge amount of kind of specialness because, you know, he's the one that's got the strength of two, maybe. Um, and I think I read somewhere that, that Gladys did actually uh, pray to Jesse at the end of each day. So I thought, well, it's not a great leap, you know, to imagine yeah. Elvis talking to his brother because I think he was, he kind of carried him around in him, or at least my version of Elvis does. The, the, this specialness also extended to his name, didn't it? Because Elvis was a really unusual name, wasn't it? It's a really unusual name, and it was misspelt, wasn't it, on those first posters when he when he performed in Memphis. It's Ellis Presley instead of Elvis. Yeah. And somebody asked him, what, what's, what's your real name, son? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Elvis Presley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So he had that, that specialness from an early age, didn't mm -hmm. he? He felt that he was, he was different. He didn't fit in with his friends at school. And I think is that so. Fair to say? Yeah, no, I think that is fair to say. And I think you know he was he it was it was kind of him and his mum against the world is, is the impression that I get, and that you know he was also someone who was marked out by his love of music. So you know he was someone who, in Memphis um, and in and even in Tupelo, would you know cross cross the colour lines, you know go into the black section of town to listen to music. Uh, in a time when you know you just you didn't do that, it became quite fashionable actually when he was when he was a bit older, when he was a teenager in Memphis, for white kids to go to the Black Gospel Church and listen. But it, but I don't think that was the case earlier on. So you know when Elvis, even when he was about ten in in Tupelo, he was doing that. He was going to the local store to listen to the amazingly named Ulysses Mayhorn play his trombone, and. Um, uh, you know, he was very driven by he was driven by that from a very young age. So I think that also marked him out as different. I always think it's one of the interesting things about all those early rock and rollers, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, that the main experience of entertainment they had was at church. It was these nutcase preachers who were allowed to do anything they yeah. wanted to do. You know, yeah, yeah. So they were the first people that they saw perform because they grew up without television. Yeah, yeah, and it is a huge performance. It you know, massive the whole thing with the with the handkerchief and the sweating. You know, yeah, you can see Elvis doing it later on in life. You know, right, he's mopping, yeah. he's throwing out the handkerchief. <laughs> you know, and it is it's very it's very based on that and the idea that you would kind of, you know, uh, leave your body almost have this amazing experience in church through music, that you would leave your everyday life behind and become transported. You know, and you can see that's what he does. There's a little quote in his shows. There's a quote here where you talk about uh, Elvis would inherit from Gladys his unpredictable, uh, his unpredictable impulses. Uh -huh. what, what, what were those you, think, you were thinking of? His unpredictable impulses. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I suppose it's that uh, it, it, both Gladys and Elvis, I think, had a, had a kind of great desire to have stuff, you know, yeah. and to, and to uh, uh, grab at life and live it, I guess. So, you know, Gladys was kind of known, although she was this um, 
a uh, very very responsible woman who you know went went round getting this petition for her husband to to get out of jail. She was also known as a young girl for her for her buck dancing, which you know for the time yeah, was yeah. really quite out there because it was kind of black form of dancing. You know, get up, getting up on a crate and getting down basically to you know Jimmy Rogers or whatever was playing. And um, <clears throat> she also w- had quite a temper on her. So when she was young, she, there's a story that she threw the sharp end of a plow of, of a plowshare, which I think is like the blade of, of the plow, at the head of um, a sharecropper who went to whip her daddy when he was working in the field. So, and she also threw a pot of hot beans at Bernan's head once and <laughs> sort of threw them across the room. Was known for throwing things at Elvis, threw a plate of tomatoes at him when he wasn't behaving himself and it crashed against the wall and you know uh, so she she had this temper which I think Elvis had as well and just that thing of kind of going after what you want you know um, I think was in both of them how much uh, this obviously is a book about a woman and her son Mm. and uh, how the relationship was changed by you know his prominence and his fame and so forth Mm. your mother yourself yeah. Of a son. Yeah. I'm not asking to. I'm, I'm not plumbing your psyche. Who plays the guitar? Psyche. Who he does plays play the guitar. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, doesn't now, look, he doesn't look like Elvis, though. How much of the, you know, that side of things really interested you in writing the book? I think that that was what made me write the book, really, because, um, you know, although I was fascinated... I was totally fascinated by Elvis himself and about, you know, the story of how Elvis became Elvis, but what really made it personal. I think it has to be personal for you if you're going to write this kind of book. And what made it personal for me was Gladys and her relationship with Elvis because, you know, Elvis was her precious only son. And, you know, I have a precious only son. I also read some things about how maybe Gladys... um, She had a very difficult birth. Obviously, you know, she lost... Um, uh, w- w- one of the babies, but uh, th- but there was also a thing saying maybe she had um, preeclampsia, which I had. So it just felt like oh, there's some sort of right. links, and it's always those little links where you think oh yeah okay that's quite interesting to me. And you know I so yeah I was I was fascinated by that relationship and about the kind of um, you know because it's almost toxic, isn't it? Her love for him is almost toxic because it. Well, there's one it's point very... you said that she won't let him go out yeah. on his own, even when he's 15. Now, is that? Was I that don't think that was true. That actually. wasn't true. No, I no. don't think that is true. I think it has been overstated all of that because you know there is evidence that he went to things like the local radio show, the WELO Jamboree, um, with Mississippi Slim, who was a very early. Um, influence of his you know that he went to that when he was about 10 yeah um on his own you know he would have gone he would have gone in on his own and gladys let him do that and you know i think once once they moved to memphis he's he's slipping out a lot yeah you know i don't think she was that control and he she was working a lot of the time anyway um as a nurse's aide at the at the local hospital so she couldn't have kept that much of an eye on him the, the, there's a paragraph in the book i don't mm. know if you can read that for us where, sure. where, where she talk where she describes going to, uh, you know, being outside of uh, some occasion where he's going to perform or, or you know, yeah. listen to a performance. And I think it's, it's interesting because it gets at this, this question of her relationship with him. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's 1946 and um, Saturday afternoon and Elvis has gone to the WELO broadcast um, in, 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 in downtown Tupelo. Um, and Gladys is, is waiting outside. 
On a bench near the steps, she sits to watch the wide double doors. There's clapping and cheering, followed by a long break in the noise, during which, she guesses, Slim must be introducing the next act. Feeling closer to her son now, she relaxes a little, tapping her foot in time to the music, and allows herself to picture him at the front, singing. Whenever he sings alone in church, her gut flips over and her eyes become wet. She is fiercely proud and also afraid of how good he is. She feels sometimes as if she cannot stand it and must leave the room. It is difficult to make herself sit there listening because she knows he has talent and she also knows that when he sings he goes someplace else, someplace beyond her reach. And in that place she cannot rescue him from failure. I love that. She cannot rescue him from failure. Because, you know, that becomes more and more of an issue as it, as it turns professional, you know. Now, and I think this all the time about... Uh, I, I often think it must be terrible if you're the parent of a top-level footballer. You have to sit there and watch. Things will go wrong in mm. front of, you know, mm. 70,000 people. Mm. And, you know... It was similar to that, wasn't it, with Elvis? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also, you know, you've got to remember, she was terrified for his life because he's out there, he's getting ripped to shreds almost, you know, by all these girls who are yeah, trying to get a piece of It's pre-security, isn't it? I mean, no one's ever seen this there kind is of no mayhem. It, it was, security happened because of Elvis, There's you know. There's one scene I mean, where he's literally getting ripped limb from limb by all these right, that's right. girls and in the audience. That's right, and you, and, you know, Tom Parker actually ended up asking, you know, local police wherever they went to help because he'd, he, he had to do something. But, but basically, you know, the, the stage would be stormed and, you know, he, Elvis would leave the building with one one trouser leg hanging <laughs> off or whatever. I mean, he did ask for it, obviously. And, you know, there was also a thing where he would um, he would have a line of, of girls waiting to get a kiss from Elvis. I mean, that is true. They would, they would stand there and wait in line to, to have a kiss from Elvis after the show. Quite amazing. But, you know, and, and no, no security at all. So they could have done anything. And Gladys got very, very worried about, you know her son's life for real because you know he, he could have been killed and also you know he was he was criticized a lot at first in the in the newspapers you know for his grunt and groin antics as the press called it um so you know she's got a lot to worry about and what she really wanted was for him just to settle down and become a furniture salesman because you know wherever he went he would buy her lamp so he'd go all over the country um, doing a show and he wouldn't know what to buy so he'd buy her a lamp and bring it back and she can say, well son why don't you open a, a furniture store with all these lamps you know wouldn't that be nice and settle down and get married and let's have some nice grandbabies please you know that's what she wanted We're looking at a picture now of, uh, of Elvis with Tom Parker and Elvis with Sam Phillips and Bob Neal his first manager and so forth mm. it, it, that, that's quite interesting isn't it in the book that you suddenly get these these kind of surrogate parents coming into the story, yeah, taking yeah. things over from... Uh, and having huge control over him as well, Take, taking him to some extent away from her. Huge control. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the key to, to Tom Parker's relationship with Elvis is, is to think of him as a surrogate father, really, because, you know, Vernon was kind of absent in a lot of ways, although he was there and he loved his son... I think he just didn't... He had no clue what to do. I mean, you know, neither of them did. It was all 
you know, what, what, how on earth do you handle this situation? No one's ever been through it before, and they were just poor country people, you know, who knew nothing about the record industry. And Tom Parker steps in, and appears to know everything, you know. And so, and actually, uh, Elvis's parents signed that first contract, you know, because he was underage. Um, so yeah, Tom Parker definitely took over that kind of parental role, and that explains a lot when you think of how long. Elvis stayed with him, and through you know what sort of circumstances he stayed. Did they as know well. about Tom Parker's past? Because he came from that kind of carny did they circus know? Did background, did performing bears and bearded um, ladies. I don't. I don't think he he ever made a secret of it. I think he was quite proud of it actually. But I, I'm I'm guessing that he he downplayed it to Gladys when he first met her, you know, and upplayed the the stuff that you know of, of who he'd banished before, and you know his kind of industry contacts and the fact that he knew people in Hollywood. That would have been a big one, but Gladys didn't trust him at all for Genius a long time. Genius marketing man. Because he yes. really did have two types of T-shirt you could buy. One saying, I love Elvis Presley, and I, another one saying, I hate Elvis That's Presley. That's right, yes, he did. he had them both on sale, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, he did. So know. their family life, yeah. Yeah, they're still living at... <laughs> they're living in, in Memphis. They live in, was it Audubon Drive, first Audubon of all? Audubon Drive, they're, yeah. They're mm. the rather flash bungalow kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they move on to Graceland, which we'll come to. But... Their lives were, were kind of lived amongst loads of other people, weren't they? The family was just in, you know, there, were, there would be 20 people in the house, wouldn't there? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, for them, it was very, very normal for family to come around. You know, that was how they spent their, their leisure time. So, you know, Elvis has a lot of cousins, right? And, you know, because Gladys is, is from a big family, Vern's from a big family, so th th they would all rock up. So they were in this house in Audubon Drive, which is a very upscale kind of golf set part of Memphis. Really nice if you go there. And it's all kind of ranch-style houses, you know, and lovely lawns and so on. And, you know, here come the Beverly Hillbillies, basically. You know, it's like the pickup truck arrives and the peop people in the overalls and so on. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the neighbours don't like it. And they don't like the fact that Gladys hangs her washing out um, because that's not what you do. You know, they don't like the fact that they have chickens. Yeah, they, they did they keep chickens. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, they did. And, you know, and they really don't like the fact that, that there are loads of girls, uh, you know, lining the street at all hours and, you know, screaming and um, trying to get in into the house. And, you know, <laughs> and Gladys would actually let them up the drive and give them Kleenex to wipe on Elvis's cars to take away as souvenirs. Um, so, you know, it's mayhem, isn't it, for, for anybody living there? And they got, they got quite shirty. But Elvis um, apparently told them that he was the only one that actually owned his property outright and <laughs> in the street, so that kind of shut right. them up. Mm. So in your book, how does Gladys react to the sudden uh, interest, you know, from glamorous young women who, who turn up with Elvis to, you know, as his latest girlfriend from Hollywood or from wherever? Mm-hmm. How well, does she feel about that? Well, I mean, uh, not great, I don't think. I mean, I think, I think um, you know, there's two sides to it. The one side is that Gladys is very charming. You know, she's very good at that kind of southern woman thing of just, just being lovely to everyone um, and, you know, welcoming in them into the house and so on. But what she really wants for Elvis is a wife, right? So... You know, it, um, she she's always kind of looking, you know, who is going to be the most suitable person for my boy? Which means who is going to be a good wife? Which means who is not going to give him any trouble? Um, and, you know, who is going to who is going to stay home, cook his meals and give him give him children? So she's not very keen on Natalie Wood, for example, you know, <laughs> who came to the house. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and you know was Natalie Wood, and and Gladys didn't like her at all. Um, but but generally, you know, if they were good mannered Southern girls, uh, then then that was that was kind of okay. And I think she char she charmed them all, but she was kind of interviewing them as well, you know, to 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 ascertain their suitability as a Presley bride. I think. Right. Right. Mm. You've got a wonderful line in, 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 I think, I can't remember which girlfriend turns up, some, somebody from Hollywood, and, and you said that Vernon looked at her like she was the glass of water that he'd been waiting for for a long, long time. You know, that <laughs> Vernon obviously thought it was fantastic, this parade oh, Vernon, of... Vernon enjoyed it. ...of lovelies yeah. arriving in the house. Yes. So they, they, they have to move out of Audubon Drive. They, yeah. Now, Vernon and, uh, and Gladys, they buy Graceland, don't they? They, they, they go and see it, first They go and see it for Elvis because he's too busy in, in Hollywood. And doesn't Gladys oversee the kind of doing up of it? She's the one who... She's in Gladys charge of the kind and of decorating Elvis. decorating Yes, of it yeah, yeah, yeah. Gladys and Elvis together, but Gladys kind of oversees it. Yeah, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, was, it, was, it was a bit better taste, I think, when, I, when Gladys did it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> than it is now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. yeah. But it, as you say, it is not an enormous house at all, is it? No, 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 it's not. Um, but, you know, it's the house that he bought for his parents, really, and the house that he bought, you know, where they would be happy, safe. So it's, you know, it's a little bit away from the road, but not so far that the fans can't see him because it's very important that the fans, you know, get a good view of the kind of Presley life, you know. Um but the thing really that, that, that made me want to write the book almost was this story that when they moved to Graceland, Gladys brought her chickens with her. The chickens are very important to Gladys. Um, you know, she brought them with her and she was told quite quickly, don't, don't feed those chickens in, uh, in front of the house. You know, don't feed them on the lawn because it's bad for Elvis's image. Um, and I just thought, what would that have been? What would that conversation have been between Elvis and his mother? about, you know, when, when he tells her, you can't, can't feed them chickens, Mama, you know, and how would she respond? And, you know, what a strange thing that is for her. Because that's, that's one of the things that happens in the book. You, you feel Elvis feeling slightly self-conscious about her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, he's trying, to, he's trying to introduce his mother and his, and his new life and, and find some kind of balance between them, isn't he? And he can't be done, can it? It cannot be done, no. No, Gladys isn't going to fit in that hole, is she? Definitely not. And, you know, I mean, Gladys is actually in um, Loving You, his second movie. So she's in the audience when he's kind of playing uh, got, a lot of, got a Lot of Living to Do, I think it is. And she's, the, the, the director said, oh, wouldn't it be nice, Elvis, if we had your parents in the, in the audience? And Gladys was so worried because she thought she was going to look overweight because by that time, you know, she had got quite big. Um, but she is in there, and it's actually quite moving if you watch it because you can see her getting up on her feet, you know, really excited to see her boy performing there's, but, a bit where she's, yeah. there's a bit where she goes to a department store and she wants to be recognized yeah. is, is that fictional did you fictionalize that or did she did she really enjoy the fact that she was she was a celebrity um i think i think she probably enjoyed it a little bit until she realized what it really meant for her you know i think she didn't enjoy it in that she couldn't live her ordinary life she couldn't socialise with her neighbours anymore, you know, and that had been obviously a big part of her life. I mean, you know, when they moved to Audubon Drive, she said, oh, well, you know, this house is all very well, son, but it hasn't got a porch. Where am I going to, you know, give, drink lemonade with my neighbours? Um, because, you know, that was, that was her life. So 
I, you know, I'm sure that she enjoyed some aspects, you know, and I think at first particularly she liked the fact she got the, she got the dresses, you know, she got the cocktail rings, you know, there's, a, there's an oil portrait of Elvis in the living room and so on. But pretty soon I think she became, well, in fact, she said to her, her sister she was the most miserable woman on earth when she was living at, at Graceland and she became an alcoholic. Tell us about the drinking. The drinking, I think, actually started before Elvis was was famous, um, but became a real problem, you know, as his fame just went stratospheric. So um, she would uh, have beer in a paper sack, so it was hidden in a paper sack, um, and it got to the point where she was um, biting on raw onions to, you know, hide the smell on her breath, and actually she died of, of hepatitis and severe liver damage brought on I think by you know people think I mean you know no one knows because you know it hasn't been um you know it, it hasn't been documented totally but you know severe liver, liver damage hepatitis I think it's alcohol poisoning right. um and you know there was a history of of alcoholism in her family and in Vernon's family um, and you know, Elvis, she was never able to, to to reach out to Elvis about that because you know, she just hid it completely because he was very, very anti any drinking in the house, and especially women drinking. You know, right. so I think it was just a very lonely, painful few years for her, really, at Graceland. And of course, at the same time, he was getting his call-up papers. He was, yes. And that was her second worst fear, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So he's, he's, her boy is now having to go off to Germany. What does Germany mean to Gladys? It means war. You yes. Know, it, means, it means her boy is going to die, basically. And also his career is probably going to be over. They, they didn't and imagine his career would survive it, did they? Yeah, I mean, I think Elvis thought his career was over, yeah. for sure. You know, and, it, you know, and I mean, Tom Parker was very clever in, in keeping the career going, you know, and changing it so that when he got back, you know, it was about the movies. Yeah. And so on. But, um, yeah, I mean, he didn't record for, you know, the two years he was in the army. He was just singing at home. And so, you know, he, um, she dies mm-hmm. when he's away. Well, she dies when he's, yeah, when he's training um, at Fort Hood, yeah. So he comes back to Memphis. Um, he gets a special uh, permission to, to, to get out of the army and come back and visit her. But, yeah, he, you know, she, she dies in, in August um, and the effect on him is catastrophic, isn't it? I mean, he's absolutely mortified by it. Yeah, 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 it is, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's lots of stories about, about the funeral and about, you know, how he um, was kind of trying to throw himself in the grave with her. Um, and, you know, you can definitely divide his life into before and after that, that event, you know, in terms of... Uh, I think how how he viewed you know uh, the world really, and I don't think he ever quite got over that loss. And I think it isn't and really an exaggeration to say that she was really the only woman that he really loved. I don't think he could love another woman after that. And I mean, maybe he would never have been able to anyway, you know, because he had a very strange view of you know um, the, the the female half of the population anyway. <laughs> but. <laughs> very, very strange. Very, very odd. Never, never, never slept alone. Never slept alone no. in, in the, from being about five years old, did he? 
Um, well, yeah, that might be a slight exaggeration, but yeah, he, he hated to sleep alone and he would do anything he could to have a girl in his bed. It didn't mean they were having sex, it just meant no, no, having a girl yeah. in the bed. Yeah, and you know, and, and earlier on that, he would always have one of the guys sleeping in the room if he was on his own, yeah. Because mm -hmm. he was just a very lonely person, wasn't he? I think so. I think essentially, yeah, a very, a very lonely person who never managed to kind of, I, I suppose never managed really to kind of grow up, you know, and become a full, a, a full adult because he was always so connected with his, with his mother in a way. Mm -hmm. When you wrote, got round to writing this book, did you think somebody must have written this book already? <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. It's yeah. such an extraordinary story, isn't it? It's such an extraordinary, confined in this time period, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Did you go out and check? Has anybody I else did. done it? I did go and check. <laughs> is, and there is, is, there a, is there a registry where you can check? There is. <laughs> it's called Amazon. And, oh, you, right. and you have a check. And, um, and there, is, there is a book that was published in America, um, which is a novel of the early life of Elvis. But, but all the names have changed. And I think I, I didn't read it. I deliberately didn't read it because I thought if I read it, I'm not going to write my own, you know. And, but it's the only one I found. And I don't think it was ever published here. So I don't know. Maybe someone's read it. I think it's called Tender. Maybe someone's read it. Um, I, I haven't read it. So I don't know, really know what it's, what it's, what it's like. But um, that's the only one I found. So you didn't find, didn't, after this experience of writing this, you didn't think, oh, I want to have a go at some other musical icon or anything like that? You didn't think, oh, write the Bob Dylan story, or anything. <laughs> no? <laughs> yeah, my husband would really like it if I did that. Yeah. Um, no, not Bob Dylan. Um, but, I mean, you know, there's a part of me that would like to write part two, you know, the second part, although it is rather, I mean, it's even more depressing than the first part, really, you know, the long decline of Elvis. Um, um, I am very, I'm very interested in the Beatles and I'm very interested in Brian Epstein and I might some time, I would love to write about Brian at some point. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a fantastic Brian story. Brian is so great Amazing and I, I mean, story. I love Brian and I, I, I would just love to write something about Brian, but I don't know whether that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Right. Mm -hmm. But you've got to have a death, haven't you, to write these things, you know? Yeah. It, Bob Dylan's no good at all. No, no, no good. Uh, so he won't die. What are you working on now? So I've just finished um, a book. It's very different than, than the Elvis book. It's a book about contemporary witches in Brighton. It's quite a light, funny book. It's kind of about their, their exploits on the downs, naked. And um, it's, about, it's about a kind of menopausal middle-aged witch <laughs> who tries to, <laughs> who tries to um, convert a young, a young woman to become her kind of witch. And, Is there an and actual that, witch scene How that goes Brighton? wrong. Oh, yeah, there's a massive witch scene in Brighton. I'm not part of it. I made it all up, but there is, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, we look forward to that. But meanwhile, both Mark and I can highly recommend uh, this book. Uh, anybody who's well interested in good fiction, but also interested in the story of Elvis Presley. Thank you. And, and the stories of uh, you know, celebrities and their mothers. And, you know, what celebrity does to families yeah. is mm -hmm. I've... Personally, you know, I, Mark and I were talking about this the other day and, uh, you know, the subtitle of this podcast ought to be It's the Family I Feel Sorry For. <laughs> because, you know, I do. Yeah. But um, please thank Beth and Roberts. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.